Hello, beautiful people. So as you may have heard me mention, I've started a Patreon for this podcast, and I'm very happy to announce we've got our first batch of patrons, so I'd like to thank some of them now. Our premier patron is that star of the cabaret stage and cast album artwork, Robbie Roselle. Thank you, Robbie. You can follow him on Twitter, at DivaRobbie, and I highly recommend it. He's amazing. Next, I'd like to thank my frequent guest and collaborator, Carrie Ginsburg. If you listen to this podcast, then you love Carrie, but not as much as I do. Not that it's a competition but I'm winning. Finally today, I'd like to thank Chelsea Christensen for pledging her support to the original cast. Chelsea is an amazing person with a lovely family and DC theater is better for her being here. So thank you, Robbie, Carrie, and Chelsea. Want to get thanked on the air? Just go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and pledge fealty to the original cast. There are three levels of patronage, all with their own rewards, but they all give you access to our patrons-only podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. The pilot episode of The Original Cast at the Movies about Moulin Rouge is available a few episodes back in this feed. The January episode, which will be patrons-only, will have Tracy Lynn Oliveira and Holly Twyford talking about the 1971 classic, Willy Wonka, and The Chocolate Factory. So head over to patreon.com slash originalcastpod to become a patron and listen to the original cast at the movies. All right, here's the show. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is the Associate Literary Director at Studio Theater. It's Lauren Halverson, everybody. Hi. How are you? Good. Good. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Thank you for coming. This is great. We're So we're doing something different today. Uh, and I'm not sure how I'm going to edit this, but I'm excited to find out. <laughs> because we're talking about... The Wild Party. All of it. All of it. <laughs> all of the Wild Party. We're yeah. talking about the... Uh, the the poem we're talking about the off broadway we're talking about the broadway we're talking about the whole thing mm-hmm. so um i don't usually i ask like how the show came into the guest's life but <laughs> since we're doing this like nine or ten different ways yeah um why did you want to do because this was your idea so why yeah. did you want to do this um well first of all i have to say that when you approached me about doing this and you said like pick a cast recording and I came back with how about two um yeah so thank you for like for indulging me <laughs> sure with that um I wanted to look at these I was thinking about like cast recordings that had a impact on me mm-hmm. um and ones that I particularly listened to a lot I have to say that I was so I was just home in Connecticut going through all of my childhood ephemera um and one of the things that I was realizing is that my musical taste as a teenager and in high school was like 10% angsty ladies at pianos, like 10% Dave Matthews band, 80% original cast recordings. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, it's a good spread. Yes, a good spread. Um, very diverse. Very deeply New England. <laughs> um, but I encountered both of these cast recordings when I was about 15 years old. Um, and I was deeply into musical theater at the time. But I think that encountering them, and it was one of like the first seminal moments I think in my development as a dramaturg even though I didn't know what that was and even though I wouldn't know what that was for many years because I think it made me start thinking about how you can tell the same story or how you can how we tell stories Mm -hmm. and how you can tell stories in a variety of ways um and I think that's that like unlocked a part of my critical brain at the time even though like I clearly didn't know and I was just like yay musicals um yay hedonist hedonistic jazz age tragedies um so I wanted, but I wanted to talk about them because I also think that the story behind, as somebody now who um, 
like commissions and develops and produces like plays and musicals and theater. Um, I think that the story behind how these two musicals happened is absolutely fascinating, Mm -hmm. but absolutely bonkers. Yeah. (laughs) Um, As a case study, Mm -hmm. it's insane. Um, So I think it's really interesting. But I also think that, you know, these both came out in 2000 and were almost 17 years later. And these projects have become inextricably linked. Yeah. And I think even now when you see a review of one happen, they always have to mention the other one. And there are these like dueling adaptations, but they are so wildly different. There are these two musicals that have two deeply different artistic missions. Um, The composer's sensibilities are wildly different, but I feel like they often get talked. They always get talked about in the same breath. And I always feel that they always get compared and contrasted without just because they're based on the same source material, but there isn't really a conversation about how divergent they are. And that's why I, I wanted to talk about both of them. It's a it's a weird case study. It's so weird. And something that I can't <laughs> imagine ever happening no. again. Because there are so many individual factors that like led to these two things, not only just being adapted in general, but like also happening in the same New York yeah, theater season. Yeah, in the same season. In the same season. Because um, normally when you're adapting something, especially something that's based on like a previously produced source material, you're wrangling with the estate, you're dealing with, you know, a right. variety of other people. But that did not happen here for a, should, should I just like talk about? Yeah, like, sure. Well, okay. let's start, let's start with a poem. Let, let, let's kind of back up a little bit and, and start with the actual poem by Joseph Moncure March. Queenie was a blonde and her age stood still and she danced twice a day in vaudeville. Gray eyes, lips like coals aglow. Her face was a tinted mask of snow. What hips, what shoulders, what a back she had. Her legs were built to drive men mad. And she did. She would skid. But sooner or later they bored her. Sixteen a year was her order. They might be blackguards. They might be curs. They might be actors, sports chauffeurs. She never inquired of the men she desired about their social status or wealth. She was only concerned about their health. True. She knew. There was little she hadn't been through, and she liked her lovers violent and vicious. Queenie was sexually ambitious. So, now you know. A fascinating woman as they go. Actually, this was a poem that he was improvising, um, and Mm. he was doing and performing, like, line by, like, over the summer of, I think, like, 1926. But um, he was the managing editor of The New Yorker at the time. And it wasn't public. He couldn't find a publisher for it until 1928. And there was only there was a very limited run. I think it was like 750 copies. Um, And it was immediately banned in Boston. Um, (laughs) Well, that's where they banned things. That's where the banned things was. People really famously banned Pinocchio. Famously banned. Yes. Um, (laughs) And after that, I think it became like an underappreciated cult classic. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's William William Burroughs often cites it as the reason he wanted to become. A writer. Yeah, period. Um, which is reading this. Um, and, you know, it was adapted into a film in, I think, 1974, 1975. Yeah, Merchant Ivory production. Yeah, with yeah. Raquel Welch. Um, but other... Yeah. <laughs> so random. Yeah. Um, well, other fam- than that, famous it, blonde Raquel Welch. <laughs> but, you know. Um, but after that, it slipped into obscurity until 1994 when it was reissued. Um, I think by Pantheon Books. Um, and, and, like, republished with these, like, wonderful illustrations, illustrations yeah. by Art Spiegelman. Um, and it was heralded as like a lost classic. Um, and the reason why it was republished, and this is like the key point, is that somewhere between 1928 and 1994, the copyright to the poem was not renewed and it slipped into the public domain. Right. 
So, which is a lovely place. Which is a lovely place for it to be. <laughs> and love exactly how Andrew Lippa yes. and Michael John Lacusa, yeah. am I pronouncing that right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I can John spell Michael, it. John Michael Lacusa. <laughs> I yeah. can spell it. Um, both of those <laughs> composers individually found this, found this poem and were drawn to it and started independently adapting a musical of it. Which is a very logical thing. I had never read it. I obviously had heard both musicals, but had mm-hmm. never read the poem. It's It was described as novel length in everything I read. Yeah. But it's not. No, it's it, not. 40 pages? It's yeah. just a long poem. I mean, it's it's a not. Long poem. When you think poem, you might think short. It, it's mm-hmm. broken into three parts, I think, or four parts. Four parts, and it's told in rhyming, syncopated couplets. Right. And it's very easy to read. It is. Yeah. A, it really flows. And, and, and I you can absolutely see why. I'm sure they were not the only two who thought this would make a good musical. Oh, yeah. I well, mean, and it's, it's also, like, such a interesting, rich story. Like, it's mm-hmm. ripe for, you know, dramatic adaptation because it's this jazz-age tragedy yeah. about this very volatile couple. They are... Queenie and Burrs are two vaudeville performers who have a very volatile, abusive relationship and decide to break up the monotony of their relationship by throwing a party at their apartment, which, over the course of the evening, devolves from, like, your run-of-the-mill hedonism into uh, <laughs> literally climaxes in an orgy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then ends in a murder. Right. Um, and as well as, you know, various personal reckonings and information and their wild group of artists and performers and cultures and identities clashing um, in Prohibition era in New York. Right. Yes. In an era known for its which is wild ab- parties. Exactly. Which mm-hmm. is, you know, I'll see a musical of that. Sure. I'll see two. Totally. Why not? <laughs> Would have loved to. Would have loved to have seen these both yeah. in New York. I've never... Well, and the other reason why I wanted to talk about both of these is I've never seen a production of either. Oh, okay. I've so you only, didn't see it when it was at Constellation. I didn't. I missed it. I was bummed. Um, so I didn't see... They did the Lippa version that. They did Lippa Constellation, right? yes. Um, so no, I didn't get a chance to catch that, but I've only ever experienced them as cast recordings, and I've also never read the book of either. Mm. And that's also interesting because I think particularly with the Lippa version, when you don't read the book... I feel that I'm missing parts of that story. Yeah, as I understand yeah. it from, and I didn't see it at Constellation either, unfortunately, but it is, mm-hmm. it's just pretty much a sung through and the cast album covers about half of the material. Yeah. So there's mm-hmm. a lot left off the album. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they recorded it when they did it at Encores. Yeah. Was that last year? The I year don't before? think they did either. Yeah. And that's interesting because he radically changed it. Right. Um, so. He completely changed the opening. He cut new songs. I. Yeah. Yeah. I've oh, And I've always wondered I'm always surprised that that one hasn't had a more of a like major like a commercial full, revival. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or even just a full studio cast out, like you know the, f- yeah. the first complete recording of mm-hmm. you know Wild Party, yeah. uh, and then so Lippa wrote book lyrics and music for the Off Broadway, mm-hmm. and Michael John Lucuzzo wrote music lyrics and co-wrote the book with, with George C. Wolf. George C. Wolf, who also directed and produced it, and no, when we when no we, slouch, no slouch, <laughs> yeah. But when we get to talk about that one, I I'm interested to talk about like what it what it means to have George C. Wolfe as a collaborator Ooh, okay. Well, we'll get to that. So we're going to go poem, off-Broadway, Broadway, because that's the order in which things were released. That's what yes. we've decided. Um, and since off-Broadway opened first, it gets it gets the first kind of script. But I want to stick yeah. with the poem for a second. So you had read the poem before prep for this? I did. No? Um, okay. Well, I had read it several years ago. I actually have it with me. I, ha- I have a copy of it. Um, so the full one. But... Um, no, and I bought the poem after I listened to both cast recordings, like mm-hmm. originally when I was a teenager. Um, and I had it on my shelf, and I but I hadn't really read it in many years. Mm-hmm. And then I reread it again. So what struck you when you pulled it out again this time? Oh, God. 
I think what strikes I think what strikes me um, is how atmospheric the poem is. It's very. Um, That's like a great word for it. Yeah. yeah, it's deeply atmospheric, and I think that it is far more situation than plot <laughs> or character mm-hmm. development. Um, and I think that he's really trying to root you in the era of the time and in the vibe of the time rather than really getting you um, invested in like individual character. You do get invested in individual characters and you do get invested in the various party goers, but it's much more about like capturing a scene rather than getting you invested in like a certain narrative arc, even though it is clearly hurtling towards chaos and disaster the entire time. Yeah. It's a very ominous poem. I was really struck by from the very beginning, like pretty much from the second stanza. Mm -hmm. uh, It's something is wrong. Like something's going to go wrong. You just have this sense that like there's this this terrible sense of like, like you said, hurtling towards something. Yeah. And with all the violence that's sort of set up in the backstory, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially with Burrs, who I didn't quite realize was like. Supposed oh. to be, I mean, the man's a psychopath, basically. Absolutely, like nightmare um, abuser. Psychopath. Yeah, and has killed people and mm-hmm. gotten away with it because it's the twenties and you can just leave town. Of course. Um, and the juxtaposition of that with him being a clown mm-hmm. and is is really, I mean, obviously something. The scary clown is something we're we're yeah. really we're we're cool with today. Yes. Uh, and it's a, a good trope, and he really leans into it hard mm-hmm. with Burrs being a terrifying guy, mm-hmm. and. It is that sense of like what I was really struck by was like you said how there's a lot left either to your imagination or simply left unsaid. Mm-hmm. The audience can kind of take what they want from it, yeah. leave the rest behind, mm-hmm. and like you say, I think it's much more interested in creating a mood mm-hmm. and a vibe and putting you in a room and making you feel yeah. uncomfortable about the fact that you're in that room. Even the full ending ends deeply abruptly mm-hmm. because it ends with spoiler alert. Well, um, but whatever. I. Uh, Burrs and Queenie and Black all end up in a struggle after Burrs catches Queenie and Black after they have sex. Um, They struggle over a gun. Black shoots Burrs. Queenie has a moment when she's like, you have to leave to Black um, because if you show up, like, you'll be arrested. You'll get the chair. Um, He tells her that he loves her. And then he starts to leave. And then the cops come in. The end. Mm -hmm. And there's no resolution. There's no personal reckoning over the sort of like moral decay over over anything over any of the events that have transpired it's just the cops have come in well and it's an interesting it's an interesting move from i mean there's a lot going on in this poem contextually Mm -hmm. i mean with it being prohibition and prohibition being this period in time where there was this law in the constitution of the united states (laughs) that said you couldn't buy or sell alcohol Mm -hmm. and most people sort of disregarded that law, mm-hmm. especially in big cities. And it leads to this sort of interesting comment to me about, and something that's going on right now, it's very relevant right now, that if you say that, well, this law is dumb, mm-hmm. what does that say about other laws? If like you're allowed to like yeah. flaunt a law in the Constitution and you're like, well, then if, if I can say that law is dumb, then this law is dumb and that mm-hmm. law is dumb and this social convention is dumb. There's this interesting thing to me that happens at the end when it all descends into chaos and this sort of general sense of lack of consequence, mm-hmm. even though there are consequences throughout, like when Jackie uh, rapes May's sister and like, mm-hmm. you know, there's obviously... <laughs> Which actually doesn't 
happen in the poem. It doesn't happen in the poem. In the poem, no. Like, maybe. Doesn't he find... Okay. That only happens in one of them. And and again... When, like, but somebody comes in on May's sister Somebody in comes poem. in on May's sister. It's just a guy. Oh, it's just a guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> you don't... Just it's just like a shadowy figure. It's okay. Just dude. Okay, cool. It is more disturbing in the poem because they do explicitly state that she's 14 years old. Yes. Um, yes, she yeah. is. Yes, she is. Uh, God, God, there's so many words. But so then yeah. when the cops come in at the end, like the sort of the or, an order, it, it's this sort of feeling to me that like, and it feels this way in both musicals too, When, but up when Burrs is killed, that you can't, there are certain rules yeah. in the world and like mm-hmm. life and death is what, like if you pull a gun on some and shoot somebody, mm-hmm. they're going to die. Like there's a point where you can't, even though like societal laws may have broken down there are yeah. still natural laws and i like that ending mm-hmm. of the cops just rushing in and then we're done and because we're it's done. like and now society is going to come judge mm-hmm. this studio apartment <laughs> <laughs> exactly. in a serious way which is i think a very satisfying way to end this poem but i don't think that you could end no you couldn't end a musical you couldn't way. end a musical you couldn't end like a play that. that way you couldn't end no. a movie you couldn't just end it with a not at know, all yeah um and it's interesting that like both of these musicals ha- come from the same source material and they both ended on, in similar ways, mm-hmm. in very similar fashion. In very musical ways. In deeply I would say. musical yes. ways. Yes, um, it's a, it's a yeah. very kind of... A, so the story, I mean, the, the poem doesn't have a plot no. per se. It has the through <laughs> line of the love triangle mm-hmm. between, or quadrangle, whatever quadrangle, you want to call yeah. it. Between, <laughs> we have Queenie and Burrs, mm-hmm. our couple. We have Kate, Queenie's... Friend, frenemy. Frenemy, frenemy, best frenemy. Yes, and her man Black, mm-hmm. who, who's, a, who's a hustler. Who's a hustler? <laughs> Queenie takes a shine to Black. Kate, ta- Kate wants to sleep with Burrs, mm-hmm. and it all just goes very badly it when you have goes... a psychopath in the middle of that. And tons of bathtub gin. <laughs> tons of bathtub gin. <laughs> you have, yeah. I mean, and a, a host of colorful characters, which mm-hmm. we'll get to as we go as we go through. I love this little stanza I just came to on books, how they don't have any books. Books? Books? My God, you don't understand. They were far too busy living firsthand for books. <laughs> books. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a funny, like, <laughs> yeah. weird no, little it's comment like there you in get the through that poem and you're like, I know every inch of this apartment. So here's my first question for you, though, dramaturgically speaking. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> how big is this space that this poem takes place in? Because it's described as a studio apartment, but obviously the mm-hmm. bedroom is separated yeah. somehow. It, yeah, that is interesting. Um, I got really hung up on that. I don't I did know too. why. I mean, there is a door that he opens at some point right. to go into the bedroom. Um, and, but then there's also, at different times, it feels like there's another bed in the space, too. Yeah, that's what it, it's just. Yeah, because there's all these people piled on it. Um And there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people at this, at this party. party. In, the, in the poem, you don't really have a good handle on it, which is great. No. I don't want to know exactly how no. many guests showed and up. And it also sounds like they also don't know everybody there. Right. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> like just the, the just party. Just, as it would. Like if you, if you have a. Street. Right. You open. Um, it's an open house in your apartment. Yeah. I totally. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. fair. But the, I think the cast of the Broadway production was 15. Yeah. Off Broadway was 19. Mm-hmm. If I tried to fit 19 people upstairs in my house right now, that'd be a bit of a, like, a. it'd be tight. Yeah. You could do it, but as it'd be someone, tight. Yeah. As someone who currently lives in a studio apartment. Okay. Yeah, no, there's no way 19, well, 19 people are comfortably fitting. It's not only that they couldn't space. fit to me. What was funny is, like, it. there's so many moments in the poem and in both shows where people steal away mm-hmm. for a minute. Yeah. And I don't know where they 
do that exactly? Where in they this? go? Some of them. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely things happening in the bathroom. There are. <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on in that bathroom. There's a lot going on in the bathroom. Um, and then a lot of people waiting outside to then greet the people as they come out of. Well, bathroom. which is another interesting thing about the the symbolism of the apartment to me, or the, the symbolism in the uh, in the poem to me. Mm-hmm. Of this idea that like there are certain aspects of your humanity you can't deny, mm-hmm. and the bathroom is a really good dramatic structure yeah. for that, mm-hmm. because like we can put on all the airs you want in the entire world and pretend mm-hmm. that we're not like animals, but we all have to use the bathroom, and mm-hmm. so if that pops up a lot in. Um, I first became aware of that studying Stanley Kubrick's films, where Kubrick mm-hmm. always has moments of revelation and violence happen in a bathroom mm-hmm. as a sort of like no, we're all just. We're just animals here, yeah. you know. And the, the most famous one that probably most people would have seen is the um, the death of the drill sergeant in Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, it happens in a bathroom, and mm-hmm. it's this sort of idea that th- that is a place of of uh, of animal. We're reduced to our animal nature, and I was very aware of that, especially in the poem of how like much is going on. Of how in much the is bathroom. going on in the bathroom, and then as soon as people leave, it's like if there are any consequences at this party, they happen when people leave spaces that seem private, right? Yeah, yeah, Ooh, um, and reimmerse and reimmerse in in a public space. Yeah, and it is also that idea of the um, uh, th- that's where the gin's coming from. Yes. The alcohol is coming mm-hmm. from the bathroom. So if the alcohol is coming from the bathroom, then obviously <laughs> some stuff's going on in the bathroom. Uh, yeah, I I was fascinated to read it. I mm-hmm. I was really I'm really glad I read it. Uh, it yeah. oh, it answered a lot of questions I had about decisions made by the two authors which we'll get to it's also interesting to see the ways in which the language from the poem finds its way into both adaptations um into the lyrics of both Mm -hmm. adaptations absolutely um there's actually a note i think art spiegelman writes in the introduction my fetishistic interest in the trappings led me to discover the poem itself the wild party is a hard-boiled jazz age tragedy told in syncopated rhyming couplets it has a mnemonic tenacity if not the wholesomeness of a nursery rhyme and to read it once is to get large shards of it permanently lodged in the brain oh that's good right it does stick with you yeah it has a a real yeah and it is like and it's like and it's from those opening lines that get you and i think both musicals start out exactly the same way. Yes. Okay. So let's um, let's hop from yeah. let's hop from one to the next. So okay. it is certainly ripe source material. Mm-hmm. It, it's very clear and you I, I don't think uh, no one was surprised. <laughs> People <laughs> wanted to make this into a musical. Yeah. And so we hop over now to the Lippa Wild Party. Yes. Which opens as you say just like the poem. Queenie was a blonde and her age stood still. And she danced twice a day in vaudeville. Queenie was a blonde, and if looks could kill, she would kill twice a day in vaudeville. She had gray eyes, lips like coals aglow, and her face was a tinted mask of snow. With those shoulders, what a back she had. Legs were built to drive man. So this one opened of the two wild parties. This one opened first, right? Um, by two months. It, by two months, and it opened off Broadway, which is surprising to me now because I think that if I was to listen to both of these now without any context, I would assume that the Lippa version was the one that was on Broadway. Really? Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. disagree, but we'll get really? to Yes, we'll get to oh, that. That's man. fun. All yeah. right. 
I don't think there's a, such a drastic sound difference between the two mm-hmm. that you, if I played like the albums for two people and said, which one do you think open number? I think they'd just make a 50-50 guess. I, I, I do. So I see what you're talking about. Why do you say that though? I think, and again, I think this goes into how both of these adaptations reveal so much about the artist who create them and like their specific predilections and strengths. Um, and I think that Andrew Lippa writes music that is more melodic and accessible. And I hate using that word accessible, mm-hmm. but I do think that he writes, you walk out of an Andrew Lippa musical and you're going to be, you're going to be able to like hum a couple of songs. Sure. Um, but I also think that he writes and he specializes in this because prior to writing The Wild Party at this point, he had only, this was the first musical that he ever wrote the book Music and Lyrics to when this right. came out. Previously, he had been, um, probably he had written John and Jen, but he was most well known for being the music supervisor of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And writing, and writing new music and... Writing new music, including My New Philosophy, right. which like one Christian... The catchiest Chen, song The catchiest song ever, the world, yeah. which won Christian Chenna with her Tony. Absolutely. And when you think of performers that he works with a lot and that you think like represent his body of work. I actually think that Christian Chenoweth is a really good example because Hmm. he excels at writing these standalone comic showstoppers. Mm -hmm. And I think that the score for this, for the, for the wild party, for the lip version is filled with so many songs that are like completely extraneous to the plot, but are just like delightful showcases for female performers. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, I was struck listening to this album. I mean, now, listening to it, obviously, these are both albums I'd listen to, but listening yeah. to it with a the critical ear of trying to find little differences here and there. I mean, when you have songs like Old Fashioned Love Story. Which is so which is, shameless and so vulgar, but you can totally understand. It's like, oh, yeah, that's your, like, act one showstopper. There you go. Right. <laughs> I need a good-natured, old-fashioned, lesbian love story. The kind of tale my mama used to tell Where the girls were so sweet And the music would swell And in the end the queen would send the man off to hell Where is that mild-mannered, old-fashioned, lesbian love story Where people knew exactly who they were Corey crushed it every night. Right. It is a really... But what's so funny about it is it feels that that song, while it is not... I mean, because the character of Madeline... She's so predatory. She, well, she's, she's walking around this party hitting on, like, drunk chicks. Well, and, and she, like, the girl she brings to the party is... Catatonic. Right, okay, like, good. You're I was, catatonic. Yes. In both the poem and I think both productions. Yes. This, this, this is somebody she basically found passed out from maybe morphine exactly. addiction on and the like, street. here's my date. Right. <laughs> and she has the line, like, she had the quality I like, she's alive. Yeah. I mean, it's that, like, mm-hmm. it's that feeling of uh, of total, uh, yeah, she's a predator. She's yeah. a sexual predator. And she mm-hmm. has a very catchy song. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and very ironic. I mean, deeply ironic song, which gets to yeah. the heart to me of the poem. I, it, it is mm-hmm. this feeling of just, like, uh, of just like, and I love how it's an interesting thing in very 1920s to me that that there's, I mean, there's homosexuals, there's bisexuals, there's pansexuals, pansexuals. <laughs> um, they're all described 
I think he uses the phrase like what a loss or what a shame yeah. every single oh, not every time, but certainly with um Madeline and I think yes. with the brothers or with, with the brothers Darmano, yeah. yeah. Behold the brothers Diarmano, otherwise Oscar and Phil. They sang, they played piano, they functioned together with skill. They lisped. Their voices were shrill, they were powdered, rouged, sleek of hair. They must have worn pink silk underwear. They clung together with arms laced, each about the other's waist. Stood around in anguished poses, they raided a shower of paper roses. Lavender lights and the stink of joss. Suffering Moses. What a loss. It's such a like straight white man view Absolutely. of the world, obviously. Yeah. But it is always thrown out in this very like, oh well. Kind of way, like mm-hmm. a very like, oh well, you know, right? They're yeah, gay. there's like oh, a well. certain jauntiness. To it's it. not judgy exactly. <laughs> it, it it's just for the time, I find it shockingly accepting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I really find it to be, and again, I'm sure one of the reasons he couldn't get this thing published. It's ironic acceptance. You know, mm-hmm. it's this feeling of like, oh well, you know, yeah, nothing, nothing, any of these people, nothing anybody does, anything anybody does matters. Like there's mm-hmm. this sort of lack of consequence to every sure. decision. It's the at acknowledgement. The of these various identities and cultures clashing, that is what makes it controversial. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, that, that was a song that leapt out to me, mm-hmm. uh, uh, having listened listening to it again. Mm-hmm. Just hilarious and little number. I also think that what's interesting about the Lipa version is that it tries to, it really leans in to the foursome, to your four, to Kate, to the conflict between um, Queenie, Burrs, Kate, and Black. Yeah. And it tries to flesh out that relationship specifically between Queenie and Burrs to try to make it seem more like a very volatile codependency. Mm-hmm. And I think that it undersells, at least in the lyrics, at least, and again, at least on the cast recording, um, the violence in that central relationship between Queenie and Burrs. It does. It seems to leave it up. Now, again, we're going purely off the cast recording, yes. both of us. So mm-hmm. this may be covered in rest of the teeth in the that we don't One hear. more reason I should have seen the Constellation Yeah, production. I would have loved, God, I would have loved to. <laughs> there was like 19 reasons I should have seen that. I just never got there. I have twins. I but I feel in this one a greater sense of menace from Brian Darcy James's even just his audio performance huh. than I did from Mandy Patinkin. And we're going to just end up talking about these two we're things gonna, kind of I, simultaneously. Again, like there's just but you can't you, you can't leave them alone. The but it is like I really felt Brian Darcy James was unhinged. And I mm. don't know if that was because I'd read the poem and I knew who Burrs was and so I was able to bring that. But I wonder yeah. if Lippa leaves up a lot more to the performer. To be mm-hmm. crazy, because his, like, when he's trying to be funny at the party, that yeah. felt very scary to me. I was so in shock, they made me drop my rock. Well, no, what was this in? They were having a wild, wild party. They were dancing and living free. They were having a wild, wild party. And not a soul invited me. So don't you see? That's scary, and he also just has, like, this... And he inherently acknowledges his own, like, sadness in mm-hmm. a way that Burrs does not in the poem or in the in the other version. And if you look at his makeup, it's it's creepy, scary, extreme yeah. clown makeup. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, but it doesn't cover his whole face. It just has this sort of, like, general, yeah. like, his mouth and his eyes. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes him very grotesque as a clown yeah. to me. It also, I think, explains a little bit more about... Or it tries to sell the case of why Queenie and Burrs were attracted to each other in the yes. first place. Yes. Um, and it 
which I think is very interesting in that it roots it in this, like, they have this, like, sexual energy that can't be denied. Right. Um, and that their relationship started in, like, a sort of, it almost makes it seem like it's, like, here are these two people who, like, passionately collided and now can't find a way to disentangle themselves from each other, even though this has become well, like that, a deeply toxic relationship. But it puts the onus on both of them. Yes. Um, which I find, which I think is a deviation. Oh, absolutely! From, it is from the poem. Yeah, that is um, added material. Yeah. That is that is, and I want to get more into that in a second. Yeah. But it is the absolutely there is that little immediate stanza the two of them have mm-hmm. of like all my life I was looking for because Burrs has yeah. that, all my life I was looking and for like, someone to be like maybe I like it this way. If I could change, if I could grow, I'd ask for nothing more, and through that door I'd go. But if Yeah. So Rich Vane, and I want to tap in a second, but first I want to ask, um, just sort of so we know what's going on, sure. what are some ways, clear ways for you that this adapt- adaptation deviates from the source material? Deviates from the source material. So you mentioned one, that it, the fleshing out of the The fleshing out the of, the, of the love relationship. And I also think the through line of love in general is way more palpable mm. in this, in that you are meant to believe or that it emphasizes that the relationship between Queenie and Burr started with like this intense passion and the one between Queenie and Black is based in love. That it's like hmm. that it's like these people have come together, we have found each other at this party, and this is it feels more serious. In the poem, Queenie and Black come together and it's more of like a kindred spirits recognizing like two lost broken souls like looking at each other and recognizing something similar in mm. the other. And in this one, I think that it's selling more of like a true love relationship between the two of them. Oh, that's interesting. I did not get that at all. Really? Um, Oh, I mean, some of that is, and again, that has to go with the score is I think you hear that in I'll Be Here. And part of that is just like Tay Diggs and his, you know, (laughs) soaring, (laughs) soaring voice. Just, you know, just like. Yep. That's true. Sing away. Just serenade me. Um. And I think that he also explicitly says at more points that he loves her. That's true. Which he does in the poem, but he does it as he's running out after he like murdered her husband, boyfriend. Right. Um. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I, I will say I got more. I mean, maybe I'm just more. I might say something out loud now. It's exactly what you said. I'm just using different no, words. It's fine. But it, I got more the sense that like I think Queenie went after Black initially. To make birds yes. jealous, and it yes. twists and on clear. her. If that, okay, mm-hmm. if that's them. That, yeah, yes. that I will get. By the time we get to make me happy, they are having a genuine emotional connection that she does mm-hmm. not have with birds. I will completely okay. agree with that. Yes. yes. Um, and I guess that when I say that, I think that love is a more palpable force in this one. I think that's what I mean. It's like genuine emotional connection. Well, it's drawing the distinction. Yeah. I think as is in the lines. In the, I mean, I think that that line I quoted earlier. Is the aside from Queenie was a blonde and her age stood still is yeah. the most famous line from the poem for me, which is the only one I'd seen before. Some love is fire, some love is rust, but the fiercest, cleanest love is lust. The I think Ian Fleming uses it at the beginning of oh. Casino Royale, the book. I think it's in one of the Bond books at the mm-hmm. unattributed. I will say, <laughs> um, poor Joseph Moncure. Can't you get what, a break. Can't can't catch a break. But the. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if Ian Fleming didn't want people to know he'd read that. I don't know. Anyway, but 
it, it is this like that's a, a point the poem it's one of the few moments where the poem kind of stops the action and mm-hmm. makes a point and this show sort of I think I don't know if it refutes it, but it definitely leans on that idea mm-hmm. of like lust is a very I mean, the word he uses is accurate, clean emotion. It's yeah. very like there's a desire and there's a thing we want mm-hmm. and that's where it's going. And love is complicated. Yes. Love is tricky. Love gets us mm-hmm. in trouble. So like if you but if you just hang on to lust, which sort of seems to be like one of Kate's ideals. Yes. Then everything will be fine. I mean, I think it's her mantra. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, Kate has my favorite line. I mean, it's not in the. I don't think it's in the poem. Are you all right? Me? Give me a bottle of bourbon and half a chicken, and I'll conquer the world. Yeah, I think that was that definitely my like out loud. <laughs> I think that was definitely my AOL instant messenger like away a, message oh when God, I was a teenager. Such a good line. Such a good like line. Three weeks. Um, She's very southern in this too. Deeply southern. Yeah. I was born in a ditch in West Virginia. Right, and mm-hmm. is and is and she says at some points the South will rise again. I mean, it's this mm-hmm. very like it's kind of inverted southern genteelism. She yes. has this sort of like yes. flipped upside down, which culminates at the top of Act Two with mm-hmm. Life of the Party. Point me. To the mic, I know what I like. Don't you wanna be the life of the party? Don't you wanna be the cream of the crop? Don't you wanna feel those shivering fits? Till someone calls it quits, or someone calls a cop. Don't you wanna land a roll of a lifetime? Well, you better get down on one knee. Cause you could play the life of the party if you can pray with me. Again, a song that has nothing to do with anything that's going on, mm-hmm. but is, I think, when you think about this musical, that's the song that you think about. It's, I think, it's one of the most. What's well, a great damn song? It's I mean, a great damn song. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that there are many a casting associate who never want to hear it in an audition again. There's <laughs> <laughs> many a cabaret pianist who would rather never play this song. Again. <laughs> but well, it's, it's, also, hard it's to also do right. such a singular performance by Idina Menzel, too. And yeah. this this role for her came on the heels of her doing Rent and was also pretty wicked. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that as a composer, he also it's a song that was clearly adapted for her strengths as a as mm-hmm. a singer. As an actor, you can watch video of her performing it, bootleg video on YouTube, mm-hmm. and it is a an arresting yeah. performance she's giving. Mm-hmm. Um, which in, it's not on the cast album, but somewhere in the middle, I think after the first verse, she stops and does a line of cocaine or something like an amphetamine. Certainly, well, and that's the other thing: the presence and of then... drugs and how they how they function within these two musicals, and specifically on these cast recordings, is very interesting because you do, you get no indication. Of them, I feel like on the Lippa version, but it's all over yes. the Lacusa. Yeah, like, everyone's blowing lines every other. <laughs> every what is May's sister's name? Just so I can. Nadine. Nadine. Nadine sings about it mm-hmm. a bunch. Nadine sings about it. Uh, Jackie's song about wanting to do drugs yeah. and it being like all over. I'd the, give yeah. me some more. Yeah. Yeah. There's and just we're talking about the other one, but um, right. Yeah. But no, you're right. Like there's a sense of no. I don't. I didn't get that from the poem as much. Certainly. There's drugs, but like certainly there's drugs, but it, I don't like think Madeline's that it, girlfriend obviously is yeah whacked out on something. I think there's one moment where they explicitly mention doing cocaine, but it doesn't feel as pervasive mm-hmm. as it does in the Lucky's version. Yeah, where it just feels like it's like snowing. Right. 
snowing in my apartment. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's 19 people in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a... Now, I will say, you said Life of the Party is the song that everybody thinks about. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I think that it, it, it's either... The songs you know from the show are Old Fashioned Love Story, Life of the Party, or Two of a Kind. I mean, yes. those are the three mm-hmm. show-stoppy numbers. But I came to this show through Make Me Happy. Interesting. Um, I performed Make Me Happy <laughs> as black... Oh my! Um, yeah, I know. It gets <laughs> okay. hang. It gets better. Hang on. <laughs> um, so when I was at Catholic U, uh, the music theater majors have to do uh, recitals. Juniors mm-hmm. have to do a half hour. Seniors have to do an hour. And a friend of mine was a senior, and he wanted this is this is in two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. He had gotten a friend of ours to transcribe from the CD to the best of their ability, make me happy, and did a pretty good job. I got to say for piano mm-hmm. and. Um, then we were going to do it, and he wanted me to play black. He played Burrs, and and our friend uh, Kathleen Henders played uh, played Queenie, and we did the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And this was the only song I knew from this show for a very long time. And I love I I love Make Me Happy. I think yeah. Make Me Happy is is one of my ten favorite like music theater really? songs. Period. I was entranced by it when I heard it. almost have this like it's like the tonight quartet in mm-hmm. um yeah in west side story um where four different perspectives are like reaching a culmination mm-hmm. um and i think that you see these like overlapping melodies and like and i think that make me happy participates in that in a, i think poor child is more of a direct correlation to that kind of like tonight quartet mm-hmm. but i think i also think that make me happy as a piece of like musical theater storytelling and of communicating like what exactly is happening in that scene um, is like a really powerful escalation of this conflict. Um, But it doesn't feel terrifying, Mm. but it feels dramatic. I don't, I don't feel necessarily. That's an interesting distinction. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It feels very traumatic, but it doesn't feel dangerous. If that makes sense. Hmm. It does a little bit in when you hear the, um, the actual the dialogue yeah. and like the dialogue between Julia Murney and Brian Darcy James and she's trying to appease him and it slows down. Oh, oh no, 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 don't make me hurt. Don't make me cry. Make me cry. Don't make me have to do or die. How many girls have let me down? How many girls would love a clown? From now until forever you can be the life of the party. Maybe I could be the king of the hill. That's when it starts to get into like a little bit more of um, dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. But um Okay, that's interesting. I, I would I would disagree. I, I think it hmm. I think it does feel dangerous to me. It feels yeah. 
It is one of the few songs, I think, that if you don't know the source material, you really like the mm-hmm. I don't know which one of these three people is going. Somebody's going to die. And I don't know totally. which one of these three people it's going exactly. to be. Exactly. And I think that it actually sets up that that struggle. Yeah. And prolongs it in a way that feels that doesn't feel like you're just sort of like, OK, like, when is this going to happen? Right. Um, I think that it actually like heightens that drama between the two of them i would uh, yeah i would agree with that i was really impressed because like i say having performed it i have make me happy in my bones mm-hmm. how I, I remember the first time i heard it though being like god this song changes melody like 42 times and mm-hmm. there's all this. and now having dug deep into the recording i am super impressed with how the whole show builds to that song yes well and this is also what's interesting i think a difference between the two of them and again like just going off of the cast recording is in the lipa version you have it you have this like you it starts it ends with the orgy and then it immediately goes into this conflict right and it doesn't sift around and sort of like the aftermath of the party as much as the lacusa one does which i understand why it doesn't i think it makes sense for that but it also ends up prolonging this confrontation, this inevitable confrontation between these three people. Right. Um, whereas the Lipa version is like, nope, we're diving right into it. Yeah. Um, we're not even going to take a moment to really like sort of rest. It's like, this is happening. This is, yeah. And it's, yeah. it's you can also watch this online. There's a bootleg of the three of them performing mm-hmm. it. And yeah, it's Brian Darcy James running around with a gun. It's pretty, in clown makeup. It's pretty, pretty terrifying. Uh, but it, it's, there's all those little like, Musical, like, Life of the Party comes back in. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's another bit. What is he? How Many Girls Have Let Me Down is yeah. a reprise from an early... So, you know, I mean, there's... Mm-hmm. And it's not... It, what was really fascinating to me about it is how it's not their songs. No. It's other people's songs mm-hmm. that now are getting woven into this thing. And then and I also noticed this time that descending chord resolution mm-hmm. that happens throughout is that every time yeah. there's sort of an ominous like something bad happens that never really resolves until the next song until the reprise of Creaning was a blonde we end yeah. on that <laughs> I was really impressed with the structure of it mm-hmm. this time that I hadn't noticed yeah. before, like how many of these songs get kind of pulled in to make me happy to bring it all to some kind of resolution. Yeah. And then we sing, how did I come to how this? How did it all come to this? Yeah. No limits. No boundaries. No compromise. How did we come to this? Which is like kind of a letdown after Make Me Happy. But it's like, but you also, you need to end with her. But it also, it just like, it doesn't provide for me any sort of resolution. Yeah. That it's just like, how did this happen? Now I'm here but also, what are you doing? Like, what is she doing? Where does she go from there? But she's not even reflecting on any of that. She's just like, how do we get to this point? Show it's, over. Yeah, it feels very disingenuous to me. Yeah. It feels very... It also feels like someone said, 
listen, you got to write a song. Exactly. And I mean, and this is why, again, like experiencing it and like experiencing it lyrically, I find it unsatisfying. But I also like I was reading the stage directions in the um, in the lyrics. And one of it is that like she steps actually into the light and that I'm just like, oh, is this communicating this idea of it's like I have been living this like life of like deception and lying to myself and now I'm like actually going to sort of change my I, I mean I, I, don't, yeah, I don't I don't quite know I don't want that I and I don't and I also don't know I'm like is that something that was like communicated in the staging so then like you don't need to experience it in the music and the lyrics well yeah except but that it, yeah. if there's no the music and the lyrics need to guide absolutely where the character's going and and I get to the end and I'm like I don't know I don't know. And I mean, but but it also doesn't mirror the lack of resolution that I find like deeply satisfying in the poem. Right. It's like we have to end with this character with this central force, but we just we don't quite know. Because I really don't want to hear from Queenie. No. In that moment. I don't want to hear from Black. I want to hear like if I have to hear from somebody Mm -hmm. and you do. I want to hear from the party. Yeah. In that moment. And this kind of like where... (sighs) I mean, but also the party hasn't even been the other guests have not been central forces at all. And and right. another way that this musical deviates from the poem is that like it doesn't really delve into the backstory of any of the other guests. You get like right. um, Madeline True gets her song. Eddie and May get their song, which doesn't really reveal any of the tension going on in the relationship. And it's more of a comic set piece about the physical differences so between the two performers. Just so the audience knows. So Madeline True is yes. is, is our predatory lesbian character. Eddie and May. Played um, mainly for comic relief in this production. Yes. Eddie is a former heavyweight champion. I love that song so much. <laughs> two of a kind. Um, Eddie is a former heavyweight champion and his wife is a former Just Christian Chenoweth. And I mean, it's not, but yes. it's, but it's, basically it's Christian yeah, Chenoweth. it should be Christian Chenoweth. Um, <laughs> yes. And those are the only other characters we really hear from. You know, now that I'm looking at the song list, which has all the characters, you're absolutely right. We do mm-hmm. hear from the DeMarno brothers. And there is a moment in one of the first songs where you're introducing everybody, What a Party. Um, and they introduce the characters one by one, but they only introduce them with like one qualifier. Right. It's like Eddie, Pugilist. May a hooker, Do- no Dolores a hooker. May a looker, like, and that's all you really get about right. them. Um, and there's you a don't lot, get like any more uh, context than that. There's a not. I mean, there's this sort of the sort of. I don't want. I mean, I guess I could say worst thing going on in this <laughs> are the Demon, uh, the Darmano brothers. There we go. Mm-hmm. Um, who are incestuous, uh, incestuous gay couple. Yes. Incestuously devoted. Incestuously devoted, <laughs> which gets kind of tossed. I mean, it's focused on in the poem mm-hmm. for a chunk. Like, he's very clear of being like, yes. this is what's happening here. This musical kind of rushes past it in mm-hmm. a, like, that they're just sort of. Yeah. I don't know. They're foppish almost. Like, it's a very bizarre. A foppish. They're to provide entertainment, but it yeah. doesn't really delve into any of the intricate mechanics of that. Yeah. And it doesn't <laughs> give. it. Yeah. <laughs> How does that work? Yeah. And it doesn't give the thing that really upsets me about the treatment of the background characters is that there's no depth to the party Mm -mm. as much as these people are there for the four main characters to play off of and to interact with and then move away from. And I also I mean, and on the subject of depth, I really don't think that it delves into the time period at all. And I don't feel like I have any context for what is going on in the world outside? Well, and that's Either. what's also funny to me is that I read 
I guess I just assumed, but I read everything I read about comparing the two sort of says how this version is not explicitly set in yeah. the 20s. Mm-hmm. Which, which, well, I just, I kind of, I disagree with that. Yeah, the music is the music absolutely. The music isn't is at all. the yeah, music is very much in the Andrew Lippo wheelhouse of like modern. You know, it, it's like not. I don't want to call it anachronistic because that's also not what he's going for. But no, um, it, but it's it, very much like modern pop electric guitar. There's an electric guitar in the first like yeah. Right bars. away, it yeah. tells you that this is not going to be like some sort of. Pastiche. It's not going to be Chicago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it declares itself very clearly. It does. Yes. <laughs> He tells you pretty much what you're up for, uh, yeah. you're in for. But it also just doesn't seem interested in any of, in like examining any of like the history of the time, which I think is that, which the poem does do. And that's why I think that the Lippa version is more of a deviation from the poem because it's mm. not as interested in that, as we were saying earlier, that like atmospheric quality about like setting up a scene and setting up a scenario and setting up a time um, and immersing you in an era. See, that's it. Yeah, I would agree. It does mm-hmm. not set you up for the you know the immediate pre-depression post-prohibition period Mm -hmm. in america which was nuts yeah and also not interested really in vaudeville right and i mean which is interesting because they do spend a lot of time talking about burrs as a clown well Um, and queenie as a dancer and queenie as a dancer yeah it it, it, because vaudeville is the thing that connects all these people that's the that's the common thread is Mm -hmm. is that eddie's in vaudeville may was in vaudeville Mm -hmm. Um, Dolores, well, in the poem, Dolores is yeah. a stripper. Well, yes, calls herself a stripper. Yes, <laughs> Madeline True is kind of a Madeline. Well, she, but she then former, they're the yeah. they're the outside of that. Like yes. th- there's the, the vaudeville still remains, and the Demano brothers have a show they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and Jackie's a dancer. Jackie's a dancer. Yeah. Like, and then there's the periphery of people like Madeline True who are like hanging around those people yeah. and maybe were performers at one point or not or whatever. Yeah. They just sort of hang around mm-hmm. that group. So vaudeville still remains at the at the center of the whole mm-hmm. thing. And in this, it is, it's in the opening stanza. And then it's brought up once or twice again, but it's not at all no. the sort of central focus of it. Um, but what you said about it, the, the, the mood creation, which I think you're absolutely right. The poem creates, like we said, the poem creates a mood. Mm-hmm. And you said it, it creates a mood of the time. I would say this show really does a good job at creating a mood it's Absolutely. just not the mood from the poem it's yeah. its own like i say yeah. this feeling of dread and doom it's decidedly less gritty hmm. but i think that it does tap into the drama and the chaos yeah i mean it finds its yeah. thrust in in the two couples mm-hmm. it's so funny that this thing is so short yeah the 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 poem is so short as source material Mm -hmm. so you'd think well then we can just include everything (laughs) (laughs) but it's an interest as you say it's a fascinating discovery of moving from one medium to -hmm. another because certain things you can do in poetry you cannot do in Mm -hmm. a show and like characters need to have backstories Mm -hmm. they need to have we need to understand their motivation because they're flesh and blood people not words you know not in this sort of poetic amorphous sort of sense Mm -hmm. and so (laughs) you you end up having to cut stuff which is just fascinating to me and lippa decides very clearly the background is what will get reduced it doesn't get cut Mm -hmm. it just gets reduced i don't think does he cut anything actually um No, I mean, it, again, it's like the background just gets reduced. I'm trying to think if there are Of course, are we don't know. Characters. I mean, we, we can say... Yeah, I don't think anybody... Oh, he, he do, I don't think that he mentions the two producers 
the Golden Goldberg. Golden like Goldberg. The two, the two um, okay. Broadway producers that are minor characters in the poem, slightly larger characters in the La Cusa version. Yeah, they're like, and and I do, and it's interesting because this one has the large, this musical has yeah, the larger has the cast, larger cast, right? Whereas the La Cusa Wild Party is more of an ensemble piece with less actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a so to sum up. to wrap to wrap lippa um Mm -hmm. what so what do you really enjoy about this adaptation of it i think that one of the things that i really enjoy is how he essentially like tried to apply a narrative onto something that does that inherently doesn't have a narrative Mm -hmm. um and i like a lot of the dramatic I like a lot of the dramatic license that he took and I think that there are pleasures but is this a, to it is this an A for effort or a, a, I think it's an A for effort it's interesting and, well, part of this has to do like and again like this is me discerning between my taste and my judgment sure is that my I think that there's parts of this that make I understand why the Lippa version is the one that gets revived more often because I think that it is a more um you can follow the story more because there is a story mm-hmm. um and I also think that the music, again, is more accessible, a little bit more pal- palatable, a l- little bit more melodic, but I find it a little pedestrian. Um, I know. I know. Someone's going to like hop in my mentions and call me out for this. I, I don't think so, but uh, we'll get um, to that in a minute. <laughs> we'll get to that after but we talk I al- about But Lacusa. I also think that like it's a real testament to Andrew Lippa as a composer because I also think that this perfectly plays into his strengths. Um, mm. And I think that it's a real showcase for the type of work that he's interested in, the type of work that he excels at. Um, I think that those individual those individual songs that we talked about, Life of the Party, An Old Fashioned Lesbian Love Story, they're like great comic achievements. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just not necessarily to my taste. And I also think that I find, I think one of the things I love about the poem is that very rich social and historical and political context, which is totally absent here. Um, that I think is explored in more depth than the Lacusa one to like m- some success, mm-hmm. not completely perfectly. Um, but I find, but yeah, I, I I can appreciate the focus and I can appreciate the um, the like narrative intent of this piece, but I find it less interesting. What's your favorite song? Oh, my favorite song. Um, it's a great question. I think there's something really appealing about Raise the Roof. Sure. I think it's the one that I listen to the most. Crash the ice and shake forever. Tell the evening where to go. If you need a new endeavor, I can teach you what I know. Grab your partner by the collar. Bribe the barman with the dollar. Just ignite a mighty holler. Lead me to the trough. Till the clock goes off. Let's raise the It's a, I mean, did you, which one did you get first, by the way? Oh, that's a good, I don't remember. Okay. That's probably better that way. I don't remember. Um, I think I experienced them both at the same time, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, the other thing about these two musicals is that, you know, when these came out, I was in high school and I think that it was also the first time that I was experiencing musicals 
and being aware of like the greater machinery around them because I was so immersed in the story behind the two of them oh, being okay. produced and developed. And that was really the first time that I started like reading Playbill and reading like reviews sure. and um, becoming immersed in a world that is, you know, very much now my day to day. Yes, as it would be. Yeah. Your entry point, as mm-hmm. it were. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, oof. Okay, I'm trying to figure out what to what to bring up and what to hold back. It's no. uh, for the ne- well for the next the next segment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think that I don't want to compare and con- anything I have to say about quality will be a compare and contrast. So I'm going <laughs> to save that. Um, no, and th- and that's the hard thing is that it like, is. I don't want to compare and contrast them because they're two completely different musicals. Right. Um, but you end up comparing but we're the gonna, precedent, but I you're mean, going to because, you're gonna, they're, because they're based on the same source material. I think that but. the the thing I can say about this is that, um, I mean, I think, the, first of all, as a as a piece of theater, the cast is remarkable. Absolutely. Um, and you have people, like you say, who are stars now, mm-hmm. who are burgeoning stars at this point. Yeah. So you have Brian Darcy James, who's on his way up mm-hmm. in a serious way. Yeah. Um, you have... Uh, Indina Menzel, as mm-hmm. you say, um, Fred and Tay Diggs, mm-hmm. who I believe at this point are married, and if yeah. not on their way to getting married, on their way to getting married fresh off all, of Rent. You also have like a real breakthrough performance from Julia Murney. I think yeah. this was her first big, her first big, her yeah. first big deal. Absolutely. Um, and those are all also performers that I. One of the things that I love is that the people who perform this wild party, I don't I don't want to see them in the other version because the type right. of performers that they are is like they can belt. They can handle those pop songs. They have like this, they are like real tried and true musical theater performers. Mm-hmm. Um, and this musical perfectly suits their strengths and sensibilities. Yeah. yeah. Just for some nitty gritties for everybody and ran for 54 <laughs> performances. It at opened Manhattan, at Manhattan Theater Club. Manhattan Theater Club opened mm-hmm. February twenty fourth, two thousand. Closed April 9th, two thousand. Ran for fifty four performances. One, not a lot. It won. Uh, <laughs> these it won are like off, Lortel, didn't it? These are off Broadway awards. It won yeah. our, Lortel's for scenic design, costume design, and lighting. Mm-hmm. It won the Drama Desk Award for score or for outstanding music. I don't know if they were still splitting them between music and <laughs> lyrics in two thousand. Um, it won an Obie for choreography. Mm-hmm. Uh, Outer Critics Circle Award for Outstanding Off-Broadway Musical, Henry Hughes Design Award. I don't know what that is for scenic design. Mm -hmm. Um, And the SSDC Joe A. Calloway Awards for director Gabriel Bear and uh, choreographer Mark Denny. Um, Mm -hmm. It it was not a hit, Mm -hmm. but is the one I will say in my crew, Mm -hmm. I think because it was (laughs) off-Broadway. Totally. It has this like mystique to it a little bit a little bit in in the sort of in the outer music theater world it's the off-broadway one it's the edgier one like not that that, not that there's much of a distinction but yet i i'm always surprised when i think that this debuted off-broadway that because it feels like it's the more i think of it as the more version that you would put on broadway Hmm. and no no one has yet and nobody has yet and i'm a little surprised i think another reason this gets done more um is that uh it has songs to yeah. attract actors. Yes. So like you say, you get to play Kate, you get to sing Life of the Party, you mm-hmm. get to play, you know, like there's, yeah, you can you can cast an Eddie and May, you can cast mm-hmm. uh, Madeline. These people get show-stopping yes. routines, so it, it'll, it'll attract a cast easier maybe than mm-hmm. the, 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 the accuser version. And yeah. of course, as we know, 
the more things get done, the more they get done. Yeah. So more people put on LIPA, more people have read about LIPA, more people mm-hmm. have seen it, so they'll see it again, and then mm-hmm. the Lacusa kind of drips I, in the back. Yeah. Well, bit. and I also think there's elements to the to Lacusa that make it uh, more of a challenging production. All right. Well, let's <laughs> hold there because we're going to stop, and we'll be back <laughs> on Tinder Hooks to find out what Lauren Halverson thinks oh of Wild Party. Oh dear. On Broadway. <laughs> The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me on Twitter at UnknownPenguin. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts from the convenience of your iPhone and or check out the original cast on Stitcher if that's how you get down. Now, thanks to Lauren Halverson for coming down and talking to me today. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Rehearsal.